This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Last month, legendary climate denier Fred Singer died at the age of 95. We ran an obituary on the Drilled News site that gets into some of the things that Singer accomplished in his lifetime. Some people think you should only say nice things about people when they die. I don't think that serves anyone, really. And it's important to understand the real damage Singer did in his life. So I wanted to do this episode to look not only at Singer's legacy, but also at what came before him and what came after, sort of his place in this legacy of denial, the people and the conditions that set Singer up for doing the work that he did and how he groomed the next generation. Unlike a lot of the climate denial crowd, Singer was an actual scientist. He was an astrophysicist. He actually had quite an illustrious career early on. He designed some of the very first satellites that gave us information about the Earth and the atmosphere. But at a certain point, Singer's anti-government ideology really kicked in, especially around the Cold War and the aftermath of the Cold War. He started to see any kind of regulation as just a slippery slope to communism. And he didn't just use his scientific background to muddy the waters around climate science. He was an aggressive bully who really went after climate scientists. In a lot of ways, Singer designed the modern climate denial movement. Here he is on a San Diego news show, Good Morning San Diego, in 2012, with a terrible journalist feeding him softballs and just lying through his teeth about what we knew then on global warming, sounding quite reasonable, even though he's saying preposterous things. Real busy with Dr. Fred Singer this morning. He is a noted atmospheric physicist. He's also one of the world's chief skeptics of global warming and here this morning to tell us why. Good morning to you. And you're also the founder of? The Weather Satellite Service for the U.S. government. All right. So I was the first director. First director. So I know something about satellites and about observing the atmosphere from space. And you feel like a lot of this global warming is simply hogwash? Uh, Well, let me put it this way. The real issue is not global warming. The issue is what is the cause of the warming. And we have to decide whether it's mostly natural or mostly human caused. 
And obviously natural, there's nothing, there's not there's much we can do about each, it. you know, mm -hmm. and we have to find out which is the important one. Well, of course, the, 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 the one side, the, the argument on, on uh, global warming is the carbon dioxide levels and how much they're going up yeah, and, and be, how man-made it, it is. The, the CO2 certainly man-made, mm -hmm. yes. So it's plausible that uh, humans could be affecting the climate. And you just have to look at the data. That's what we do. Now, the satellites don't show any warming. Satellites don't show warming. No, they don't show the warming. What Only about the, the polar, surface stations. Do. What about the polar caps that are melting that people keep bringing that's up? A, that's a detail. We're not concerned. We're mostly concerned about the tropics because mm -hmm. that's where all the weather comes from. So today I've got on Dan Ziegert, who wrote the book Civil Warriors about the tobacco industry lawsuits in the 90s. In his research for that book, Dan did extensive research on John Hill. He shared some of that information with us for the last season of Drilled. Hill was a big-time PR guy who worked for tobacco and oil, sometimes all at the same time. And he was really a pioneer in the sort of tactics that Fred Singer would go on to use. As an investigator for the Climate Investigation Center, Dan has also researched Singer quite a bit, and he'll talk to us about the sort of lineage between these two guys. Dan's also the one that figured out that John Hill had effectively tricked journalist Edward R. Murrow into giving a whole lot of credibility to tobacco industry-funded scientists. It actually delayed any kind of action on smoking for many decades. Dan will get into that story and how it reminds him of what he's seen on the climate front. We've also got on Connor Gibson, a researcher and investigator with Greenpeace, who has spent a ton of his time researching Fred Singer and his impact on climate actions over the last few years. Those conversations and more are coming up in a minute after a word from this episode's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not gonna happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking, laundry is not so fun. Those huge heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 
40 Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Dan Ziegart. I have been for most of my life an investigative reporter, and I wrote a book called Civil Warriors, The Legal Siege on the Tobacco Industry, which was about the tobacco industry's pursuit by the plaintiff's lawyers who were trying to hold it accountable in the mid-90s. And I now work on climate issues for the Climate Investigation Center, where I am the senior investigator. Right. Thanks, Dan. I'm hoping you can start with a bit about John Hill and this amazing story you found where he convinced one of the best journalists out there, Edward R. Murrow, to promote tobacco-funded scientists. All right. So uh, when I was researching my, my book, a bunch of documents were released by actually by a congressman that dealt with Hill and Knowlton's original building of the denial machine that became so well known, uh, which started in 1954. And as I, as I looked into that, it became clear that there were sort of peaks and valleys and uh, mountains of public concern about this. And of course, once the original study that was covered in Edward R. Murrow's report on See It Now, the two-part report, which was the famous study of mice that had been painted with cigarette tar and developed cancers. When, and then Murrow became interested in this and decided that he wanted to do a report on it because everyone else, of course, was covering it. And the industry had gone out way out on a limb and said that it was not, it was not only going to be vigilant, but if it found something that uh, was in cigarettes that caused cancer, that would, you know, it would halt, uh, stop everything and take very dramatic action and make sure that it was removed. So that was the standard that they had set themselves. But the thing was that when Murrow went out and did it, and went out and, and actually he had very little to do with finding the, he himself, uh, who was you know probably the preeminent figure at that point in television journalism, very little to do with actually picking the uh, people who were interviewed. The scientists who were interviewed were mostly picked by Fred Friendly, who was his producer. And Friendly went out and found a crop of people on both sides. And the people he found uh, who were upholding the tobacco position, were extremely convincing, not only because uh, at that point they had been well drilled in what to say and they had their own ideas anyway that were divergent, but these were eminent people. These were Elmer Hess, who was the president of the American Medical Association. It was W.C. Huper, who was an important figure of the National Cancer Institute. It was Dr. Paul Coton, who was an environmental cancer uh, specialist out in uh, Los Angeles. And all of these guys were, in one way or another, compromised by the industry. They had taken, either they were already on the payroll 
or in the case of Coton, uh, were actually members of the Tobacco Industry Research Council, which was this front group they had set up. Hill and Knowlton, the public relations agency, particularly John Hill, who was directly involved. And also the, the head of the Turk, the Tobacco Industry Research Council, which was later called the Council on Tobacco Research, was... <laughs> Clever switch. <laughs> yes, or, or CTR, as we like to call it. CTR was Dr. Clarence Cook Little, who was the scientific director of Turk and was the had been the head of the Jackson Hole Memorial uh, Lab in uh, in in Maine. The thing was was that if you if you looked a little deeper, and they also had a Henry Green, who was an eminent pathologist, Yale Medical uh, Center. But if you looked a little deeper, you you found was every single one of these guys was had essentially either been been bought and paid for and was on the staff or was about to be. And those relationships were not disclosed fully. The point here is that, you know, these were eminent people. And actually, when Fred Friendly got a call from one of the tobacco guys and they asked him, well, how is it going? How's your program going with Murrow? And he said, it's going pretty well. But if anything, I think it's going to make the, it's going to make the tobacco industry look better than these scientists because your people are better at explaining. They're more definite. And of course, this is what is possible to be more definite when you are really espousing a particular point of view and you're a paid mouthpiece. Uh, and that's the great advantage that these guys have always had, this particular uh, wing of the scientific community. So this set the sort of standard, I think, for disinformation campaigns, in a sense, that this particular industry, which was so frightened of, for its for survival and which was really relatively small, had gone way, way, way beyond the call of duty, in a sense, to assemble a group of scientists that was basically an almost impregnable citadel uh, of scientific denial. You know, their credentials were as good and in some cases better than those that were, you know, on the actual side of, of looking into and investigating what was causing cancer. The effectiveness, though, was, was striking because after Murrow's broadcast, and this is where we, you get into sort of a really interesting comparison between tobacco and climate, but within a year of tobacco, of the Murrow broadcast, the result of this whole campaign by tobacco was that it was completely effective. They found, as they looked, they, there is a great deal of material on this in the tobacco files, um, in the documents that are found that you can find that were produced in the lawsuits, where they go back and they say there's very, very little in the way of interest now in smoking and health. This is 18 months after the tobacco uh, broadcast by Murrow. So they, it's amazing because this is a, re, a very small group of people, a few scientists, some public relations, uh, public relations firm, you know, and a handful of companies, and they completely change the public dialogue about the most pressing health concern probably of the 20th century, which was smoking. So you have to say that that's pretty good bang for the buck. What's really fascinating is you look at tobacco and you look at how eminent some of their researchers were. And you look at climate and you look and, and you see that most of the people, like Fred Singer, like Mr. Mark Morano and some of these other people, are either not scientists at all or have absolutely no relevant 
scientific experience. They're not climatologists. They haven't studied the, the science, the relevant science. And yet the results are just as good, you know. And what explains it is, is that it's not the eminence or the even credibility, facial credibility of the scientists. It's the PR machine behind it. It seems to me like part of it now is that the PR guys have almost built their own entire media ecosystem. So they'll put some kind of bullshit thing up on a fake energy blog. Then the Daily Caller will pick it up as an item and maybe they'll advertise it in Axios or Politico or convince those guys to include something in one of their newsletters. And then it'll get a Fox News shout out. And boom, all of a sudden, it's a real news story. Well, I I think so. Absolutely. I mean, there's a fragmentation of basically the American attention uh, span or the American where everyone is reading off into their own little corner of where, where they are ideologically. The market is much more segmented. We're not all watching uh, Walter Cronkite at seven o'clock on, you know, every night. We're, we get our news from a hundred different places. So they've obviously they've been able to take advantage of that. And of course, because of people like Hill, who believed that public relations was basically the answer for how companies could successfully navigate this whole sphere of public acceptance. And by building essentially the tools that are now used, people like Hill and the other people that you've discussed on your on your podcast are, have been able to um, perpetuate basically a larder of different techniques uh, that have become basically standard issue. You know, anybody who works in corporate public affairs is very well aware of the terminology that's used and how it's done. And they just deep, they, they roll out the same tired myths all the time. You know, I think it's yeah. that. And I think it's also just a sort of breakdown of what was, you know, what was once a kind of single channel kind of um, attention that the industry or anybody was able to get. When Vietnam was on the TV, it was a transformative event because everybody was watching those same broadcasts and it had a huge right. impact. And the same thing with many other issues now. It's it's. It's it's not it's 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 not possible to have that kind of lock uh, on the public's attention. Okay, so let's talk about Fred Singer. He died last month at the age of ninety-five. How does he fit into the history of denial? Singer emerges pretty quickly as a skeptic on ozone and a number of other things in the late twentieth century, eighties and nineties. But what's what's interesting about Singer is that he's he's obviously an extremely bright, if not brilliant, man. But there's a turn in his life at some point, and it has seems to have to do with his anti-government leanings, which had been pronounced from the very beginning, in which he just started attacking anything that really had the, uh, anything in the public health realm that uh, had the stamp of approval by government in terms of going after uh, cigarette smoking, uh, radon in basements, and climate. And it didn't seem to matter. He seemed to wear these hats interchangeably, even though he really didn't have any specific expertise in any of these areas. And he becomes kind of, I think you would say, the quintessential model um, of a denier, you know, kind of a personality. Very smart, but completely uncredentialed and totally irresponsible and acting essentially as his own agent and as an agent for the, the industries that he was associated with. He, because he's a scientist and he understands scientific method, he's able to pick out all the areas where there may be some, uh, you know, less than unanimous sentiment about certain things. But even when he's dealing with well-accepted facts, you know, he's clever enough 
to find, you know, a, a, a space for him to kind of stick his hook in and be skeptical. And the very fact that, it, that he is doing it gives him, you know, gives the, the issue some sort of dignity because of his background, even though he's, he's, it's irrelevant in many ways. But, and that, you know, he, he's also a very aggressive person. I mean, he, he went after scientists. He, he, he really tortured people, like the uh, infamous example of Roger Revelle, uh, as he lay dying, you know, and, uh, and, and Singer was a guy who would go after people as people, as scientists, as individuals, you know, yeah. and, and that's a hallmark of this group too, I think, that they are very, very active in attacking other scientists, just as active as they are in, in promoting, you know, science of their own, which in fact they don't have, of which in fact they have none. I mean, that's the most interesting thing. This particular yeah. group of of quote-unquote scientists, unlike the tobacco people, who were publishing peer-reviewed articles. You know, these people, yeah. Coton and the other people we mentioned earlier, and much, much later than that, in the 70s and early 80s, people like Dr. Gary Huber was running the Harvard Project, which was a completely tobacco-funded project, but was an eminent researcher, was still publishing in the peer-reviewed literature. Well, Mark Morano and Malloy and Singer have never published, and especially Singer, because he is a scientist, never published climate-related uh, climate science in peer-reviewed journals, never went to legitimate scientific conferences and presented papers. Not once, you know? Yeah. That's a huge difference, very different. The, the fossil fuel companies did not have to do some of the things that the tobacco industry did, which actually infiltrated, you know, many of these... Um, for instance, professional organizations and scientific and medical organizations with their own people spied on them, followed them around. Some of that, of course, the industry, fossil fuel industry has done, but not so much, it would appear, at the, at the, at the micro level of actually you know, being at every single climate-related scientific event. If they have, we'll find out about it sooner or later, you know, I'm sure. But... The way it looks now is the effort required is not as substantial, you know, to, to, to keep this uh, mythology floating. But Singer, I think Singer is extraordinary because of just the number of different assignments he took on for all sorts of clients. And one of the things you find in the tobacco files is you find the facts, cover pages uh, from Fred Singer uh, going back and forth to all sorts of organizations, to Philip Morris, the, the tobacco company that makes uh, Marlboros, to APCO, which was one of the big uh, public relations firms for right. Philip Morris and other companies, and to all sorts of other organizations promoting himself and to fight on behalf of the, of the tobacco companies, particularly in the area of secondhand smoke, which is where he really made actually his, I think, his mark if he made one. Critical issue in the early and mid-90s. Coming up, we're going to talk with Greenpeace's Connor Gibson about more of Singer's work on climate denial and the lasting impact he's had on the climate issue. (music) 
Connor Gibson does research for Greenpeace's investigations team. He focuses on polluting industries, their front groups, and PR operatives, particularly focusing on the Koch brothers. But he's spent the past few months doing a deep dive on Fred Singer. Fred Singer was denying environmental problems and solutions since before I was born. I'm yeah. currently 31 years old. I was born in 1988, which is the same year that James Hansen warned Congress and the American public that global climate change is indeed upon us and that was caused by humans beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, which is something that Singer worked vigorously to deny um, while that was happening and in the years that followed. Uh, but even before that, you know, Singer was already developing contrarian stances to a variety of problems starting around the 1970s. Um, he came into the Ronald Reagan administration uh, and was an obstructionist in uh, a scientific process that was designed to find solutions to acid rain. And the science was starting to become very clear. Acid rain was caused by sulfur dioxide emissions um, from a variety of human industrial activity like our driving. And the solution was to cut sulfur dioxide emissions and nitrous oxide emissions and that would also reduce acid rain and the problems that it caused. And of course, Singer was somebody who dismissed the warming science there and opposed a variety of solutions to the point that even Reagan's political appointees wouldn't agree with him. And I'm getting all of this, by the way, from the excellent book, Merchants of Doubt, that was written by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway. Right. Uh, that, which goes into great detail here. Um, About but, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. he moved from acid rain denial to denying the extent of the ozone crisis. That, again, was another, it became a very clear problem that was rooted in human activity. Scientists started understanding that our refrigerant technology and the chemicals that are used in it, like chlorofluorocarbons, were, um, when vented into the atmosphere, creating a ho hole in our ozone layer and exposing us to more dangerous levels of ultraviolet radiation from the sun. It was a problem that was entirely avoidable, one that indeed we solved. The Montreal Protocol brought together governments from around the world, and we agreed as a world to start reducing chemicals that were harmful to the ozone, um, you know, all over the complaints of somebody like Fred Singer, uh, who dismissed the problem. And, you know, from any perspective, it's too expensive to fix. It's not us that are causing it. It's actually natural. This exact same motions that he's gone through with climate change denial. So by the time I came into things, I, I was brought to a climate denial conference convened by the Heartland Institute in 2009 in New York City. Um, and at the time that was with Greenpeace's research director, Kurt Davies, who is now the director of the Climate Investigation Center. And that was the first time I interacted with people like Fred Singer. I don't remember if I actually met Fred at that particular conference. The, you know, the thing that struck me in 2009 was that was, there was actually a lot of people at that conference. It was, uh. it was scary to see how at least superficially robust the climate denial movement was at that time. Just a year later, though, their numbers diminished and have remained pretty low. Like they've never had nearly as an impressive conference since then. It only takes a small group of well-coordinated cranks uh, to keep obstruction alive indefinitely. All of these folks are following the playbook that Fred Singer really helped innovate. Even with Fred Singer being gone, you know, the, the danger of 
the legacy that he's left behind is still completely present and you know it's it's apparent right now both in terms of climate change it's apparent in terms of many of the same people who are downplaying the seriousness of of the coronavirus epidemic from what you've read and what you've experienced what exactly was the sort of um scientific cred that singer had or tried to attribute to himself as as you know sort of an expert source on these things in the first place if you take a broad look at the cast of characters in the climate denial movement most of them are not scientists they yeah. don't actually have any credentials to hide from <laughs> and they don't They'll have say any like scientists political scientists <laughs> like myron e bell <laughs> or, yeah, like, or, yeah. <laughs> or or cranky lawyer steve malloy like right. i'm sorry what why were you relevant in this conversation like mm -hmm. you're a tobacco mm -hmm. industry lawyer why are we listening to your opinion about climate change why are we letting you help set up our environmental protection agency but you know this yeah we are we are still in the upside down of the trump era and we will see how society shakes out after that's over yeah but the point being fred singer actually was a scientist there are so few climate change deniers who really had scientific credentials fred's right. training wasn't in climatology or many of the other fields um that are are key to our understanding of climate change science but he was closer than most. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. he was a rocket scientist. He did have a, a solid reputation um, from his work for the U.S. government in the Cold War era mm -hmm. in terms of satellite technology. Um, right. Satellites are obviously very important in terms of our understanding of how the global climate works. And so Fred was a much more powerful tool uh, for the fossil fuel industry to deny a problem just because of the veneer of legitimacy that he could provide that none of these other lawyers and PR flax could even pretend to have. And yeah. that is interesting because it clashes completely with Fred's approach. Well, while Fred Singer was a credentialed physicist, he wasn't really publishing research on mm -hmm. climate change. Um, in fact, in the late part of his career, Fred Singer was was almost not publishing any research at all. Rather, he would take the research that actual climate scientists were publishing and just contort it, blatantly misrepresenting the conclusions of people like Dr. James Hansen. For instance, James Hansen showed a graph to Congress in his 1988 testimony that really sounded the alarm on global warming. He had a graph that he was using in order to show members of Congress that this was not a natural problem. The climate change that we are talking about is rooted in human activity, our industrial use of fossil fuels, and he had a graph showing this is not natural. This is a human-driven phenomenon. Fred Singer took that same exact graph and flipped it around and used it to make the claim that global warming was an entirely natural phenomenon, which is a false <laughs> assertion, not backed by the data, but it was something he knew that once he put it out there, it takes so much more time and effort to point out how a lie works than it mm -hmm. does to, uh, to just tell the lie in the first place. And so he was a master of steering a conversation with a long string of myths and inaccurate misrepresentation of science. And while honest scientists were chasing him, you know, he was always one step ahead in trying to set the conversation in a place that's favorable for deniers and for industry to begin with. Do you think that the part of 
Fred Singer's efficacy was sort of this combination of him really uh, knowing enough about science to spin things. And then at the same time, the public being relatively illiterate when it comes to understanding the language of science. There is no doubt that Fred Singer preyed upon the public's general scientific illiteracy. Yeah. And I say this with no no it's not disparaging it's just like there's a whole other language that they use and a whole other way that they present information that people don't know yeah yeah the scientific process is 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 complicated you have to be interested and dedicated in that not to mention have access to the the educational opportunities needed to to get a foothold in that world and you know the scientific method is inherently skeptical that's the beauty of it is that you're approaching things from the ultimate point of skepticism everything needs to be proven from scratch built upon the findings of others Um, and it's never considered fully settled in the science community no issue is we do get to a point where the evidence is so overwhelming that it's foolish to wait in terms of making certain decisions as a society and you know with climate change you could argue that we turned that corner in 1995 I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. following the lead of a scientist like Michael Mann, one of the more celebrated and more uh, attacked climate change scientists out there because of the mm-hmm. beautiful simplicity of his hockey stick curve graph. Right. Uh, Michael Mann wrote a book about his experiences being attacked by industry-funded deniers, and he said that in 1995, that was kind of the turning point. You couldn't reasonably deny the, fa- the problem, and you couldn't reasonably deny the causes of, of climate change at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet we see Fred Singer, you know, that's in some ways he was just getting going at that point. Right. Um, and he continued to vehemently deny what, what scientists were, were increasingly understanding, including the more conservative scientists out there, the folks who weren't as familiar with the research. By the time the second assessment report from the IPCC came out, that was when we really knew, okay, there's, it's irresponsible to wait at this point. We do have to talk about how to solve this problem, how to slow it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm well, meandering now, Amy, I'm kind of lost. No, that's okay. Question. What would you say are, are sort of Fred Singer's biggest contributions to, uh, I guess, climate denial? Um, you know, either ideas of his or specific you know, initiatives that he kind of spearheaded or specific campaigns that he, you know, was sort of the mastermind of? I think Fred Singer was really adept at understanding the power imbalance that could be exploited um, when it comes to the public's general lack of understanding about science versus, um, political outcomes. So he knew how to capitalize on, on um, innocent ignorance in a way that, that would allow them to control the conversation just among the audiences that mattered. They don't, they don't have to worry about convincing a majority of people. They don't have to worry about convincing a majority of politicians. They just need a few isolated champions with their hands on the right levers in order to obstruct a, po- a meaningful policy outcome when it comes to climate change. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Fred Singer, you know, as one of the few credentialed scientists willing to deny climate change, he was obviously a unique and particularly powerful champion in terms of that. But what he taught others has been replicated. And it's not just 
um, the very few other scientists who deny this problem, but the people who are outside of the realm of science that have replicated his tactics. And in that realm, I'm talking more about the public relations and the intimidation tactics. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, when I look at Fred Singer's career, he didn't have data that he was producing on his own to refute the overwhelming body of facts that was developing about climate change and mm -hmm. its root in fossil fuel burning. It, rather than using that data, he would misrepresent the work of other people. He would flip it right. completely on its head, make somebody else check the references. And at that point, the conversation has already evolved, you know, to a political uh, outcome, you know, right. that, that it doesn't matter what the facts are at that point. It's somebody else is trying to figure out what lie was told when, but policymakers are already going, oh, there seems to be a lot of skepticism here. There seems to be a lack of consensus, and we don't want to make a hasty political decision based on that. Right. And many non-scientists replicated that as well. The other thing they've done, though, and this has gotten worse over the years, is to attack the people that do call them out effectively. Mm -hmm. And Fred Singer was... He, Fred Singer was great at threatening his opponents with legal action and sometimes even suing them. Uh, there's a very famous case where Fred Singer misrepresented um, the work of another scientist, Roger Revell, pretending to co-author a scientific piece with him. And it turns out he didn't. And somebody who called him out on it, Justin Lancaster, um, a scientist in his own right, was sued and brought to court by Fred Singer. And in fact, the deposition from this process taught us a lot about Fred Singer. Fred had mm -hmm. to admit some of the companies that were funding him. We realized it's ExxonMobil and Shell and companies that are now part of Chevron, uh, utility companies, the American Gas Association, mm -hmm. um, pretty valuable information that came out of this, but also relatively obscure. So while researchers like myself are getting to learn all these juicy tidbits about who's funding Fred mm -hmm. Singer and the lies that he's telling. The policy reality is still, you know, 30 years behind the science. Right. And that's where somebody like Stephen Malloy or Myron Ebel, people who are not scientists, you know, these tactics have been replicated. These people still attack legitimate scientists. These people still threaten to sue or outright sue actual climate scientists as a way to intimidate them, tie up their resources, um, beat the will out of them, really, to keep speaking right. out about the problem. And right, so I, right. I really paved the way for people like that to, to actually be very aggressive. I don't expect that you found, you know, Fred Singer's diary or anything. But the thing that I'm always really interested in with these guys is, is like, you know, the sort of ideological underpinnings, because I feel like for like most people can't do this kind of stuff for decades just because they're making really good money at it. There's usually some sort of belief or, you know, personality thing at play there too. Um, is there anything that you've seen on that front with Fred Singer? You know, what, what sort of made him convinced that this was like the thing he should be spending his time on? Absolutely. I agree with you. Most of these folks who are paid to lie have to have some level of personal ideological motivation in order to mm -hmm. continue that beyond a single contract. Yeah. And Fred Singer was a Cold War era conspiracy theorist. Um, some of it 
fairly understandable. You know, if you're working for the U.S. government on rocket science, which is what Fred was doing in his early career, uh, you probably come out of that after decades of talking about the possibility of averting nuclear warfare and, and these sort of really heavy topics mm -hmm. with a certain understandable degree of paranoia. But right. Fred just went way overboard. Um, and, and that ideological conviction also just was boosted by his deep-seated flair for being a contrarian. So it wasn't just about the ideology. It wasn't just about the money. It was that Fred loved to argue and he loved to take the opposing position as somebody else and defend it to the death. And there are many an awkward circumstance where you can see him get cornered on that. ABC News in 2008 did not make him look that great. He, he just looked like a, a wacko, really. He, he, yeah. He's d denying every problem they throw his way. And it kind of just self-illustrated that if I say yes, Fred says no. If I say right. no, Fred says yes. That's what he right. does. That's what he's always going to do. And he found right. a way to make money doing that. And it was a way that was consistent with his distrust in government. I will right. say, Amy, like, the era that we're in, the thing that I'm noticing that is new, it's not fun to notice, but one mm -hmm. consequence of the coronavirus interrupting all of our lives across the world is these fake free market fundamentalists, mm -hmm. the people who will hide behind a supposed ideology of free markets as a way to actually advance various corporate interests. Yeah. They are freaking out right now yep. because the public is going, bring it on big government, send me a yes. check, help me out. I'm totally hurting right now. I'm losing mm -hmm. my work. My family's in trouble. I, mm -hmm. I'm afraid to go to the grocery store for basic goods because I'm afraid for the safety of my, you know, my child with asthma or my grandparents yeah. elderly. And mm -hmm. they have no reasonable retort to it. And so it's interesting that Fred Singer passed away at a time where yeah. his entire movement's ideology was being put to the test in a way that it never has in a generation. Yeah. Um, and we will see what the outcome is there. But from what I can tell, you know, these, these climate change deniers, gone COVID deniers, screaming contrarian information into a space that is just very, very hard to counter the reality of what people are living through and seeing through their lived experience. You know, it, it might be that the Fred Singer era is coming to an end. I think it also depends on how long this crisis lasts and how, how serious it gets. And I, I truly, I, I would rather have the crisis be um, less impactful than have a good excuse to say, I told you so. But unfortunately, I think we're going to get a little bit of both. it for this time we'll post links in the show notes and we'll be back soon with another episode looking at some of the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic is being used to roll back environmental regulations fast track permitting all of that stuff as always you can find more of our reporting at the drilled news website that's drillednews.com you can check out our policy tracker there and you can also check out various ways to support us we have a newsletter going now that is weekly I also put scoops in there pretty regularly. We have a Patreon with the same kind of deal. 
In both of those instances, you also get ad-free podcast episodes. And you will be getting the occasional bonus podcast episode as well as a sneak peek of our upcoming investigative series. Big thank you to our latest Patreon sponsors. They are Zenia Kish, Leah Corey Hewitt, Bataille Faber, Alicia Koeb, Annie B. D.L., Larissa Aikida, Aaron Moser, Ben Inskeep, Rick Smith, Liz Audison, James Lockheed, and Liz Charbonneau. Your support really helps us continue all of this reporting, pay for production on the podcast, and all sorts of other things. We really appreciate your help. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. 